I'm picturing my audience sitting in a conference room. I ask them to raise their hand if they've ever been in a helicopter. Several hands go up. I say, keep your hand up if you would ever stand on the edge of the open helicopter. A few hands remain. Would you rappel out of the helicopter? A few more hands go down. And then I ask, would you do it almost 4,000 times? Only one hand remains. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 93 of the Resilient Journey podcast presented by the Resilience Think Tank. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and this week I'm joined by that one guy whose hand is still up, Dave Greenberg. Dave was one of New Zealand's longest serving rescue helicopter crewmen, and he took part in nearly 4,000 helicopter missions over a 25 year career. In this week's episode, we talk a lot about trust, emotional intelligence, coping mechanisms, and whether or not your CEO should be an active member of your crisis management team. It's a fascinating conversation, and I hope you'll stay with us. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Um, Now, I'm going to give you a chance to introduce yourself, but you say that your favorite places in the world are standing outside of, hanging below, or jumping from a moving helicopter um, you know you have some serious issues, right? I mean, there's something seriously wrong with you, but uh, that's fascinating. So please provide uh, a brief introduction to yourself. Sure. Uh, I grew up in New York City, and I saved my first life when I was 13 years old. I did CPR on a stranger, and that was it. I wanted to be a first responder. Uh, my parents wanted me to be successful, and we looked at the two things being very different. So I ended up um, IT career programmer and a volunteer firefighter ambulance officer, ended up in Dallas, and I, I got accepted to the Dallas Fire Department at the same time I got offered a one-year contract in New Zealand, an IT contract. So like, did I go for my dream job or did I go for the adventure? And me being me, I went for the adventure. And in the second year of my one-year contract here in Wellington, New Zealand, I ended up on a rescue helicopter. I got accepted as a a volunteer crew member. And that went on to be a 25-year career where I did about 4,000 missions. And that was where I learned to love jumping off, hanging below, and and just appreciating everything to do with... um, that kind of adventure. And that career ended in 2016, started my own business in emergency incident management. And uh, in 2019, I ended up back on a helicopter in Australia working on a firefighting helicopter, which was amazing. Um, And then along came the pandemic and did the old pivot, hate the word, but had to do something and ended up working on New Zealand's, the Ministry of Health's COVID um, response team, the national response team. Fascinating to see the the pandemic working at that really high level, um, going to parliament cabinet meetings with the prime minister and stuff, and just hearing the way they thought, which was so different to the way I'd ever been exposed to. Um, because it was so strategic and forward-looking as opposed to very operational. 
Um, but that ended uh, about a year ago, July 22, and back doing my thing, conference speaking, and but more importantly, working with um, senior leadership teams and operational people on incident management and using my lessons from the rescue helicopter to help them learn the stuff they need. Yeah, that's really interesting stuff. And and you're an author. You've got a book that's, uh, oh, I guess coming up on about six years old. But July is a big month for the book, right? You want to talk a little bit about that before yeah, we get too deep here? Yeah, yeah so I wrote a book um, that Penguin New Zealand picked up. Um, I wanted to call it something different, but they called it emergency response, like death in helicopters. And it, it, it's my story about getting growing up in New York getting to New Zealand. But long story short, I've bought, um, got the rights back to the book. And I was hoping to have it out July 1st. But by the end of this month, it's going to be republished digitally, um, doing it myself. I'm just finishing off a couple of new chapters about what I'm doing now. So by by time this comes out, if it isn't ready, it will be close and people will be able to download it. It's, it's going to be free because um, the yeah the value in the book now is the stories and people getting a new look on life and on this kind of stuff no that's fantastic and i like what you're doing there just from a branding and profiling uh standpoint with the book and using that as a tool to further what you're doing and uh, it's actually quite smart now at the beginning i called out your helicopter fetish as i call it (laughs) because you leverage it a lot in your speaking and We've been at the same conference together. I've heard you speak. And I'll just say that if anyone gets a chance to hear Dave speak, uh, you should take advantage of it. It's very good. But it's this helicopter thing that I want to focus on because there are things that you talk about coming out of that that I think are important for today's uh, conversation. And that's essential skills, the trust culture, and then what you refer to as dealing with the crap. And we'll get to the crap in a minute. So let's start here. So working on or hanging off of a rescue helicopter obviously requires a lot of technical skills between the pilot and the paramedic and and all of the highly skilled people there. But those people also need very well-defined and developed essential skills. Sometimes people will call it soft skills or core skills. And I know that 99% of the people who are listening to this podcast are never going to jump out of a helicopter, right? I know I'm not going to ever do that. But You should try it. Yeah, I should try it. Yeah, okay. Um, All right, sign me up for that. Um, But in a leadership role in the resilience industry, we will probably have to work in a disruptive situation or in a crisis environment. So let's go through some of those essential skills that you call out there. What's important for these essential soft skills for leaders, particularly in our industry? Cool. So I, I work with frameworks, um, and one of them is my trust, what you need to trust to do a job, and then how to be trusted. And it, just the trust is about your technical skills, like we need to trust those. We need to trust our resources, like uh, the day I didn't trust that the carabiner would hold me. I wouldn't get outside a moving helicopter. The big one is you have to trust yourself. Mm. Um, The imposter syndrome is huge. And when you stop trusting yourself, good luck getting outside a moving helicopter or into the arena of doing incident management. Um, The systems, all your 
SOPs and procedures, you know, prescriptive, descriptive, there are different kinds, but you need to trust them. And then the the T of the last T is trusting the team and your teammates. Um, and when when you've got all those five things you're trusting, that's great, but then you have to be trusted. And the trusted, my E is the essential skills. Um, for me, that's uh, crew resource management in the aviation world. It, it's all the, the invisible things behind what we do. It's the critical thinking. It's the way we communicate with each other. Um, it's dealing with work overload. Um, all those things that happen in a high-stress environment and being able to deal with it, you've got to remember to have the empathy um, for each other, for the people you're helping, whatever that looks like. But the empathy can't be so great that you can't do your job. Like, uh, you know, I couldn't have done 4,000 missions if I took on everyone's crisis. Um, I had to go home and eat and sleep and do all the things I did. Um, But, but the crew resource management, to me, it was a gift. It, It was the ability for me to paint a picture for the pilot who couldn't see what was going on below the helicopter or to the left side of the helicopter and the trust he had in me to make sure that the blades didn't hit the tree we were close to. And the trust I had in him that if I said we had five meters, he he didn't move six meters. And the way when things weren't going right, that we communicated what some would say were, was harshly, because you had to be going to real, um, you know, instruction mode. And but no one could take it personally. It wasn't personal. It was about getting the job done and keeping us all safe. And you can probably hear it a bit. I get so passionate about it and I love it. And I just had um, two days with the senior leadership team of a corporate. And I got them excited about these kinds of things that they could do the same thing in their business. And and then I always go back to, for the most part, no one's going to die. Like when we were on the helicopter, if we got it wrong, the first ones to die were going to be us or the people we were trying to save. Most of the crisis we're dealing with, no one's going to die. Or if they are, it's a, it's a long-term game, unless you are a first responder. Yeah. So we've got a bit more time. And it's just bringing it together, bringing all that stuff together. And and just to finish that model, the D, um, I've had it mean different things, but now I say just don't be a doofus or a dick. Depends which audience I'm talking to. (laughs) But, but, but like, you know, if you're really full of yourself and you just get on and you're, you're, not a good team player you're not going to be a good team player and people know it all right there's so much there to unpack <laughs> um don't be a doofus i'll, I'll leave it at that yeah that's yeah, good no. advice that's i mean it that's is. just good advice you should put that on a t-shirt uh, <laughs> uh, i might do that <laughs> so uh, a couple of weeks ago at the time of this recording lisa jones and i did a uh, a workshop uh called the four pillars of resilient leadership and you just hit on at least three of the four pillars. And I really, really like that because what you're describing using the terms of our 
workshop from a couple of weeks ago is very effective and resilient leadership. So it translates from the helicopter emergency response world into uh, the boardroom, whether that is a nonprofit or government. I know you're doing a lot of work in government or corporate, wh whatever municipal, whatever uh, the, you know setting that's in. So let's talk about uh, leading and working well as a team, because you don't have to be the person at the end of the table, right? The head of the table. You could be a member of the team, but you can still demonstrate leadership, can't you? Talk about that a little bit. Uh, 100%. Um, if the only leader in the room is sitting at the head of the table, the team's probably not working so well. Um, uh, in my opinion, you, you, we've all got to be leaders in whatever we're doing. So I could always, pilots when I started talked about crewmen as dead weight. You know, every kilo of a crew was a kilo less of fuel that they could carry. Um, and some of them believed it. It was a bit of a joke. But I had to be the best at my part of the job. And in order to be the best at my part of the job, I had to stand up to the pilot who was the best at their job. And I had to help lead the paramedic who was the best at theirs. We we all have different skills that are complementary. And like, like a, a team won't win if everyone plays the same position. You need everyone to have their position and be the best at that but then a team of great people won't win if they don't gel as a team so so the leadership has to come from each of us to lead our bit of the operation successfully and to to have the the guts to stand up when you just don't agree and and understand that the leader or the controller or whatever you're calling them can make a different decision and then you have to back them because you get to say your bed and then mm -hmm. someone has to make a decision. But the, it's the difference between situational awareness and common operating picture. And good leaders, in my mind, create a good common operating picture that we all have the same picture. So we're making good decisions together. And the big thing I try to get CEOs to do is stay off their incident management teams, um, be the front the front facing person and talking about it. But someone's got to keep a strategic overview of the, what's going on, because otherwise, in a crisis or in an incident, you'll lose all your competitive advantage because everyone else can come in and and steal your customers or do whatever they're going to do because your focus is on the crisis instead of the crisis team or the incident team looking at what's going wrong and your your leaders still keeping a strategic view of life and of the business. And you just posted a, a poll on that topic on LinkedIn just within the last week or so asking whether the CEO should be uh, an active member of the crisis management team or have a different role. Talk about the results on that, because they were pretty definitive. They, they definitely were. There was only one person who voted that the CEO should have an operational role. And funny enough, that was a CEO. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but everyone else, it was either very much strategic or a foot in both camps. 
And um, and I just wanted to, I knew I had my theory, which was really strategic with the, the one foot in the, in the incident camp um, for doing the, the um, front facing stuff. And I just wanted to see if people agreed. And the, the thing I love about LinkedIn and my network there, I've got a very diverse group of people. Um, But a lot of them are in incident management and emergency management. They all came, 100% of them said strategic. It was the people who are outside of our space that had different opinions. Okay, but let's talk about that for, uh, let's go maybe one layer deeper. Talk about the impact of the crisis management table, that room, if the CEO is in there. Because early on, we talked about, uh, if you only have one leader at the table, you're probably not being very effective as a crisis management team. And so many times we've all seen it where the CEO walks into a room and people start to behave differently. And maybe you just get that one single voice rather than letting the subject matter experts go. Are there other reasons why you don't necessarily want the CEO at that table? Hey. Yep. Um, for me, I don't think many CEOs follow that the leaders eat last rule. So mm-hmm. if the um, if the if the CEO says this is my opinion, and if you're not strong enough to express a different opinion, it could be the but yours could be the best opinion in the room, and it will never come out because. Um, a lot of people will just back the leader like they don't want to go up against them. Uh, I, during COVID, uh, I was in a meeting, um, Ashley, Director General of Health, came in and and he was a great, one of the best leaders I've ever worked with. But I knew his opinion. And there were two of us out of about 12 that disagreed. And we we're stamping our hands on the table with our opinion mm-hmm. to the point where at the end of the meeting, he let us go with the way we wanted, but you know, he was going to keep a close eye and we were right. We knew it. We, we knew 100% that we were correct. Um, and there are a lot of times I've been a hundred percent sure I was correct and I was wrong. Um, so the, um, but, but what I had was a leader who, had the trust in us and said, okay, my, my two incident people, the strongest people in the room with incident management have a very different opinion. So I'm going to let them go. And, but he always reserved the right to rein it back in. And I respected that because it is, he, the buck stops with him at the end of the day. Uh, yeah. Sort of two quick examples on that. Uh, one positive, one negative positive work for a guy. Um, uh, he was a chief risk officer for one of my clients, and he said, this is what I think, but you have the right to call bullshit anytime you want to. And there was never any repercussions if you said, you know, hey, Rodney, I disagree with that. Um, as it turned out, a lot of the times I didn't disagree with him, but we knew we had the the flexibility to do that. And on the negative side, working on a crisis management team right out of, I use the word team lightly, right out of COVID, just as soon as COVID <laughs> began, it was one of those um, crisis management teams of one, even though there were eight of us around the table. And it yeah. was the it was the the president, and it was her way. And if you disagreed, you were asked to not participate in the crisis management team. 
And that's not effective. That doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I, um, I learned that during COVID. Um, interestingly, around the world, a lot of people thought New Zealand did well with COVID and have a lot of respect for our um, prime minister at the time. Within New Zealand, um, she didn't enjoy the same level of appreciation. Um, like if you didn't know people overseas that were going through year-long lockdowns, then it seemed like we were having a tough life. Didn't agree with everything the government did in any way, shape, or form, but I was a public servant. And what I learned is public servants do what you're told to do, but I always had the right to leave the table. If I objected strongly to what they did, mm -hmm. I could have quit at any time. I wasn't, you know, locked into it. And nothing we did ever made me feel like, well, I can't work for Ashley or for the prime minister, you know, we, we're seeing the repercussions of COVID around the world and mental health issues and all that other stuff. But overall, I, uh, I'm pretty pleased to have gone through it here. I think we've done pretty well and I was proud to be part of it. You know, we do um, retrospectives after every crisis, lesson learned after action report, whatever you want to call it. And when you can look yeah. back on it and say, hey, I feel like we handled that pretty well, then then that's a good mm -hmm. day, right? It's a great day. So another topic you like to talk about is dealing with the crap, that real life strategies for dealing with things that go wrong. What's the message here, Dave? Well, the message is resilience. We need to find ways to be resilient. Um for me, it, it's um, the way we prepare for, respond to, and recover from stuff is where the resilience comes from. But the for me, I've always had coping mechanisms. And one of my main coping mechanisms was just the ability to talk to other people about what was going on. Uh, I never bought into the big... Um, the big debriefs, the emotional debriefs. And, mm. you know, but I I wasn't an alcoholic by any means. Like, but, but having a beer with a mate where we talked about anything that wasn't the job, just being with someone who I connected with was a great way to connect. But um, I, after one incident, everyone involved, it was a helicopter crash. Luckily, everyone walked away from I wasn't on the heli, but I was part of the management team. And we all had to go see a police psychologist to make sure we were okay. And within like 10 minutes, her name was Sue. Um, she got that I was fine, that, you know, life was moving on, no problem. And she's like, but we've got an hour. Do you want to chat? And I'm like, sure. And she goes, how do you cope? And I'm like, I, I just do. And she's like, no. Nope. Uh, and she called BS and she's like, well, you yeah. know, she said some people drink, some do drugs. Unfortunately, some beat their partners, but we all have a coping mechanism. And, and it really made me think about it. And and mine has always been chick flicks. I go and watch a chick flick and I cry like a baby. Nice. And there's some toilet roll commercials that make me go a bit sniffly. But, um, it, but recognizing it was one of the best things that ever happened because there was always a nagging part of me that said, how do you cope? And But, but I talk about it in the book that um, my friends, I'll always be grateful to them 
for the dinners, the free dinners. And it wasn't about the food. It was about the company and just being with people I love and all my problems or, or yeah, I could cope with anything when I had people around me that supported me. Two or three things there. You talked again, even though you didn't use the phrase, you talked about emotional intelligence, being self-aware, being reflective, being able to to look at yourself and understand what makes you tick. You talked about, you described being vulnerable and being willing to be vulnerable. You were being vulnerable just by telling us uh, these things. Um, and it's it's interesting because we all struggle from time to time. These things happen and we need to be able to, to talk to people. Uh, and it's good to be able to do that. You and I were there for each other, weren't we, a few months ago going through uh, a common personal thing that, that we both had uh, the loss of someone close to us. And it's just nice to be able to have that. And what's the point of having a network if it's only just about work, right? It's got to be yeah. about that personal support and and that community for each other. So thank you, Dave. I appreciate that, man. I appreciate you for what, what you have been uh, to me, particularly recently. Thanks. Hey, and I love that we, we did have that connection and, and, but we did something different than what a lot of people don't do, I think. And that's, we go to conferences, obviously, and we meet people and we connect with people more than exchange business cards. And um, there, there are a few people from that um, Boston conference that I've stayed in touch with, some who I know listen to um, the podcast because we talk about it. Did you hear this or did you hear that? The world is so small now. When I moved to New Zealand, um, it, it was $2.50 a minute for an echoey phone call. Um, so I would talk to my my family every two or three weeks. And um, and we never connected. I knew about the weather and I knew about this, you know. But now I could jump on a Zoom call with someone in Canada while I'm in New Zealand. Right. And, and even though people are only hearing the the audio, we're looking at each other, we're connecting in different ways. And we could do that with anyone in the whole world. Or I could go and present to, you know, someone anywhere in the world over Zoom. It just might mean doing it in the middle of the night. The world is such a connected place if we let ourselves be connected. Yep. Hey, I'm going to challenge you with this. This might be the hardest question. I'm not sure, but... If you had a song that played whenever you walked into a room or maybe when you walked up to be on stage to speak, what song would you pick and why? Uh, I read that question and I'm like, oh God, I'd pick a country song. Um, I love country music from my years in Dallas, but it really, I, I would pick Rod Stewart selling. Um, he's got his song about selling and it, to me that is about just going overseas and chasing a new life or chasing a new thing and um so it connects with me it's always connected with me on that basis and, and then one of the rescues i did about um 400 miles offshore from wellington um we stopped at a small island for fuel um, was off a round-the-world yacht trip. And hmm. I, I got maybe a bit drunk with them. When they got to Wellington, there was drinks for everyone involved. And, and I ended up on the yacht between here and Sydney. 
a week on a yacht when I had never left the harbor um, before. And it was one of the best adventures of my life. And again, connections, um, the 20 year reunions next year, and I'm going over to London to catch up with people. Wow. Um, it was just one of those times in life where you just have to grab life by the horns and just go with it. And um, so, yeah, great question. I love that one. I would really like to know what maybe a bit drunk looks like to Dave Greenberg. Maybe we don't have time to find that out. Hey, we're, we I are right so. out of time. So let people know how they can connect and where they can find the book. And we might be a little premature on the book because of the new formatting, but how can we connect with you? So the, the LinkedIn is the best Dave Greenberg, um, B-E-R-G, um, speaker. You'll find me and I'm in a flight suit or um, I my website, DaveGreenberg.co, um, not dot com, but dot co. And those are the two best ways. And um, yeah, I'd love to connect with people. Yeah, that sounds great. And I feel safe enough to say this because we're probably, I don't know, 13,000 miles away from each other. But swing by sometime. I'll jump out of a helicopter with you. <laughs> that is exactly how I ended up on a yacht to Sydney. Be careful what you say. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see how that hey, plays cheers, out. Mark, I've really, I've really enjoyed this. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. I want to thank Dave Greenberg for being my guest this week and for his great insights. I also want to thank him for living far enough away from me that he knew that there was no way I was serious about ever jumping out of a helicopter with him. Dave's a great guy. The Resilient Journey is a Resilience Think Tank production, and we have another great guest lined up for next week, so join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey. I am sailing, I am sailing home again, across the sea, I am sailing. Stormy 